Good morning to you. I am so looking forward to diving into the scriptures with you this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn it on or open to it, or you'll find a Bible in the chair in front of you. And uh, I hope you have that with you. Please turn with us to Mark chapter 2, where we'll be spending most of our time today. As you turn there, some of you may know over the last couple of weeks, we've been continuing our journey through studying the book of Ephesians and how really this part of Ephesians that we've been in, in particular, is one of the theologically rich portions of Scripture when it comes to defining who is the church, what the people who make the church believe is, you know, uh, and, and, and how the church actually lives. And today, we are taking a little pause in that study in Ephesians to concentrate on something that we ended our gathering last week to talk about, which is this idea of who is your one. As one commentator and Bible scholar writes, in Ephesians, God is gathering a people for himself and his purposes. He's building the church as the body of Christ and the temple of his spirit. And through this church, that is through us, everybody say us, us, as a community, God is at work doing more than we could ever imagine so that the entire cosmos might see the glory of his gracious plan. According to this plan, God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, restoring and renewing the whole creation. It was almost seven years ago that this idea that God could use a new expression of his church to reach those disconnected from God was birthed, was birth, birthed, that's not even a word, was birthed inside of uh, my heart and Leona's heart and a small group of people who, who were crazy enough to believe that God still was wanting to do a new thing in the lives of the people within their circles of influence. And God has done some great things to help those who felt the burden that God was wanting to do something more with their life, that he was wanting to bless them in their willingness to embrace suffering through generosity and hardship through obedience. And as a result, we've been able to help all kinds of people all along the spectrum of their disconnection from God and his church to not only find more clarity on who Christ is, but feel welcome to explore faith in Christ and increasingly learn what it means to submit all of life to Jesus as master and savior. Just this past week at our missional community gathering, it was great to hear how God was using this community to help us all ask deep questions about what it means to be the church, while at the same time also taking time to hear the great things that God has done because there are people who have actually decided to do more than just go to church, but to be the church. Last week, we were in one of my favorite passages of scripture where Paul prayed this, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. I remember at our uh, last community gathering uh, uh, about a month ago, uh, Jesse was, she was reading a, a passage. What did it say in the version that you're reading? Super abundantly. I love that. Our God is able to accomplish super abundantly, dude. <laughs> but I mean, if that doesn't get you, if you just want kind of like the, like the, the pure reading of it, like, that's our God. Do you serve that kind of God? 
Like when you pray as Paul prays, do you literally believe that God is able to accomplish infinitely more than you're able to comprehend? Or are our prayers so small that you're like, dear Jesus, if you would, you know, if you're busy up there, I know, taking care of the whole world in your hands, but if you would, please. Or are we the kind of people that go like, oh God, you are able, and I plead that you would accomplish your mission through my life. Is that how we pray? Is that how you pray? You know, when we read this, for those of you who are not here last week, maybe you had to leave or maybe you were teaching in our kids' ministry. We talked about how the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer empowers us to live the kind of life through which God accomplishes greater things. This is what Paul was praying. And to give a clear picture of what the scripture means when we speak of greater things, we looked at a passage in Luke chapter 15. I don't have time to re-preach that old message. You just have to check that out online when we eventually get it up there. But if you missed it, just read it. It's really simple, easy to understand. But if you look at Luke chapter 15 and you take it at face value, you will, listen, it will absolutely mess you up. I'm serious. If you love and follow Jesus, read Luke chapter 15, just that part, and it will mess you up. If indeed you are someone who truly has decided to follow Jesus, because here's the reason why. In this passage of scripture, Jesus tells a story of how a good shepherd would leave the 99 to find the lost, what, one? And then when he finds it, what does he do? He rejoices ecstatically. He doesn't go, you're a stupid sheep. Come on. <laughs> no, he throws a party, invites all of you, and he rejoices and then Jesus does something interesting to the skeptics in the crowd who are looking at him and looking down on him for actually giving his life to, to reach those who were far from God. He says this. He teaches them that there's literally nothing a person can do among the 99, those who are already part of the righteous, the church. There's nothing that you could do that brings Jesus and all of heaven as much joy. Listen to this. As much joy as bringing the what? One that is outside the church back into fellowship and knowledge of him. If you have ever read that and it didn't mess you up, you either need to check your pulse or you need to find yourself at the cross of Jesus again, begging to experience Jesus' grace and mercy. Because that will mess you up when you think about it. Listen, there's nothing you and I could do that would make all of them. Now, that's not the only thing we do, right? There's a whole Old Testament and New Testament that tells us all the things that how we should do and what the church should do. But listen, I'm just saying that there's literally nothing quite unique in all of the cosmos that brings God the Father, all of heaven, joy. Like reaching one. So everyone, who's your one? Everyone. Who is your one? Now, I'm not saying Ephesians 3.20 is not a verse. You can pray when uh, the circumstances of your life seem so overwhelming that you need God to accomplish more than you can ask or think, oh, God, this is so terrible. My life's going crazy. Oh, I believe in you to accomplish it anymore. That's, that's still what I would call a theologically sound prayer. I'm just saying that when Paul prayed this verse, he had one thing in mind. That God would use everyone in his church to reach every one. And that's why last week when I asked you to consider this question, who is your one? I wanted you to literally ask and think about one person. Who is the person that literally all of heaven is sitting on the edge of their seat ready to explode? Oh, there he goes. <laughs> 
There she goes. She's building relationship. He's building relationship. Oh my goodness. He, they're becoming incarnational. The, they're, they're, they're doing acts of service. They're, they're blessing. They're, oh my goodness, they're allowing that person to belong. And they're sharing the gospel. They're understanding. Here it goes. They asked him if they wanted to. Yes! Yes! Okay, and I'm just being really dramatic about that, but like this. I mean, come on. All of heaven rejoicing over the one. When was the last time you thought of the reality and the implications of what it means when the scripture says God is able to accomplish infinitely more than you're able to comprehend or ask? My hope today is that for all of us who love and follow Jesus, that when you leave here today, you will not only be impressed by the Holy Spirit with that one, but that you would tr truly know that God is calling us together to start actually looking like the church. The kind of church through whom Paul pray, Paul's prayer actually comes true, that every one of us lives our lives to reach every one. When it comes to explaining how we can all begin living our lives like this, I can't think of really any better example than this passage here in Mark, captured in his gospel, most likely hearing the story from Peter, who walked alongside Jesus. You know, Peter, the walk-on-water guy, cut a dude's ear off, denied Jesus three times, and eventually become one of the leaders of the early church. This is that same guy. And this is what Mark records, as Peter tells him this story. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, it says this, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on the mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. And then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, oh, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easy to say to the paralyzed, paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? So I will prove to you the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. <laughs> and Jesus picking up the mic that he was about to drop in a few seconds, turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed the mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. It was almost beyond, above our imagination and anything we could have hoped for or dreamed of. Everyone 
Who's your one? Who's your one? Sure, you can say that these four guys were only thinking of how they could help this guy find healing by getting into Jesus, and that's different than this idea that God wants to use the church so that people can become disciples of Jesus. Or, is what these four guys were trying to accomplish not really that much at all different than what all who believe in Jesus are called to do. Let's take a look at the elements of this passage that help this group of guys, help this one get connected to Jesus. And hopefully I'll do my best to make the connection of how every one of us can begin to reach every one. First we look at this passage and you, and you see that it starts with having a mission. We don't have the backstory of everything that led up to this meeting. These four guys digging through the roof of a house to get this one guy to Jesus, but it's clear that these guys were what? On a mission. And here's the truth. Mission drives us. It drives us as individuals. It also drives our culture. Some of you are what I'd like to call all-conference Christians, right? You have a mission statement for your family. You even got them painted on some really artsy thing on your wall that you paid way too much at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and and it hangs over your fireplace. You just have it up there. We develop mission statements for our companies to help us keep us on course. And when we get off course from our mission statement, all of a sudden, we're not doing what our company was created to do. You know this, for those of you who work in the marketplace. Mission defines the basics and essential of what you're trying to accomplish. For example, Jesus had a mission statement. He himself said this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the what? The lost. Hey, everyone, who's your one? Who's your one? Let me ask you a question. In light of this, what drives you? What drives your everyday motives? What wakes you up in the morning? What things spiritually has God put on your heart? Listen, believer, like if you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't believed, if you haven't figured everything out that, you know, about that you've heard about Jesus in the Bible and you're just kind of checking this out, listen, this is not for you. You can have fun as you listen to me challenge those of us who have said yes to faith in Jesus to actually live out what we believe. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you this question. What things spiritually has God put on your heart that you long to see come to fruition in your lifetime? What if you began to play, carefully plan and strategize with the care that you do with your 401k, that you do with this mission that God wants every one of us to reach every one? What if? Do you have a kingdom-focused mindset? Do you have kingdom-focused dreams such as people coming to faith in Christ? Or, if truth be told, your dreams are really tied to this life, your life, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, listen, that's, that's kind of heavy, and I just want to let you know, we live on the other side of the cross because here's the good news. If you find yourself in that moment and you're a believer in Jesus and you're like, oh my goodness, that's me. 
Here's what's awesome. First John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, as followers of Jesus, we can go, oh my goodness, Lord, I have lost my way. I'm sorry, I repent. I want a kingdom-sized vision. I no longer want my kingdom come, but your will be done. Your kingdom come. Put in me a passion and a desire. Reveal to me, God, who you would want me to reach. Tell me who is my one. You can do that today. That's good news. So these guys had a mission. Many of us would admit that we have a mission, but what makes these guys so unique is that they demonstrated that truth in a different way because missional motivation requires eager expectation. Okay, to be honest, that was the point that I kind of got my little pastor out and got the alliteration going. So leave it to me. Thank you for letting me do that. But the truth is this, missional motivation does require eager expectation. These four guys actually believed that Jesus could heal this man. They thought, maybe, just maybe. They didn't walk up to the door and be like, oh, it's, oh, sorry, bro. There's a lot of people here. We'll just wait till they're done. (laughs) Come out of the house. No, they're like, no, no. Jesus is who he said he was. And so we need to get this guy to Jesus right now, not because of only the mission, because we literally believe that Jesus can and what will, will heal this guy. And this is true of the men and women through all of history who gave all of their lives to live out the mission God has called them. They all lived out their missional motivation with eager expectations. When you read the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, you see great examples of this, such as like Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, or Elijah on, 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 uh, on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, or Baal, however you want to call it. They didn't just believe that God was sending them on a mission. They knew that God was going to accomplish infinitely more than they could comprehend or even ask. They believed this. And they were not just hoping God would show up. They did what they did because they were expecting God to show up. We now live on the other side of the work of Jesus' cross and the empty tomb. So how much greater, listen, how much greater should our expectation be on this side of the cross? The reality of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we can find forgiveness and hope for a new life and a new reason for living when we repent of our sins and surrender our life to Jesus as Master and Savior. Listen, this reality has changed the world. And whether you recognize this or not, listen, if you're someone who has never had the opportunity to place your faith and trust in Jesus, you today can confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and begin the journey of seeing God accomplish infinitely more then you are able to comprehend or even ask inside of your own life and through your life that God would accomplish his mission in the world. You can do that today. For those of you who have already had that moment in your life, to everyone who's called, to whom God has called to reach everyone, I have a couple of questions. Do you have an eager expectation of someone coming to faith Can you even think of just one? Maybe you've had that. Oh, I've had that for years. 
still. Let me ask you something. Has your eager expectation led you to action? Or are you kind of just still eagerly waiting? Sometimes mission and expectation doesn't always pan out to help us accomplish what we hope. These guys ran into a crowd, and then they had to dig through a roof. But what we learn from these guys is that obstacles prove our convictions. They prove our convictions. So listen, does your eager expectation move you to action? Because of the crowd, there was no way to Jesus. At this point, many of us would give up. We would throw up the white flag of surrender. There's no way in, so it seems. We assume that an open door is equal to the path of least resistance. And imagine for a moment if the Apostle Paul would have only walked only through open doors. If he would have done what he did only if it was the path of least resistance. Here's the truth. Over half of the New Testament would have never been written. And these men who saw an obstacle would have never have helped this one find healing and forgiveness in Jesus. But because their hope was so strong and their belief was so strong, they kicked open an open door. Actually, they dug a roof, but you get what I'm saying. Let me ask you a question. What obstacles have kept you from mission? What obstacles have maybe derailed you from mission? What would it look like for you to kick open a door? To dig a hole in a roof? For those of you who love and follow Jesus, (laughs) maybe... Maybe you've been sitting week after week in services, listening to sermons, maybe going to Bible studies, helping out at potlucks, helping serve, and you still feel like your life isn't accomplishing much. Maybe it's because you haven't found your one. Maybe you haven't dug through a roof recently. Hey, everyone. How's your one? Who's your one? If you've ever desired to be a part of God's plan to bring the realities of the gospel into the everyday circles of influence of your life and have found that it's really hard, listen, I get it. I get it. But all throughout history, the people who are the church live their lives with eager expectation for the return of Christ. And when All will become as God has intended it to be when he created the universe and everything in it when he first created it and he looked at it and he said, it is what? That's what will happen when Jesus returns. And all throughout history, the church has been made up of people increasingly learning what it means to be willing and wanting to suffer because of heavenly rewards. And when you read the scriptures, it's undeniably clear that Christians are supposed to expect Lean into and embrace suffering with joy. And this calling to willingly walk into suffering for the sake of the gospel is a call for all believers, not just for pastors and for missionaries and persecuted areas of the world. This is for everyone who would call Jesus Lord. 
And the church that God uses has always been made up of contributors and servants that lean into increasingly learning what it means to thrive on hardships and any hardship we really get to endure for Christ so that he can become greater and we can become less. This is because those who live by God's Spirit have their focus not on what is seen, but on the unseen. Now faith is this, as Hebrews would say. The church has always been made up of people who refuse to become citizens of this earth, but instead choose to live as aliens and strangers on the earth, declaring that heaven is their home and that Jesus Christ is their king. This is the church. This has always been the church. It was said in addition to these fishing club meetings, the founder of this fishing club decided that would be a good idea to build large and elaborate expensive training centers but the primary purpose was to teach people how to fish. And over the years, courses were offered of the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, and the psychological reactions of fish and how to approach and feed fish. It was said that those who taught at these training centers had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers themselves never did fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated and were given fishing licenses and they were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded, and they were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen who taught them, they never fished. It was also said that there were some who were part of this fishing club that engaged in all other kinds of occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way. So the fish would know the difference between good fish Good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were was enough. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, but they never fished. Imagine how hurt somewhere, some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen at all, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he or she never fishes, more plainly stated, is one really following if he isn't fishing? If you don't call clarity home, if you don't allow me to be your pastor, listen, you don't have to listen to anything I say. But if you consider yourself a part of this local fellowship, if you've allowed me to be the pastor in your life, I want to let you know it is time for us to start fishing. No more will we talk 
about fish and not actually do the work of fishing. It's it's time for us to start casting our nets. It's time to stop talking about it and hoping and dreaming about getting the opportunity to do it. It's time to start. And it starts with every one of us believing that our lives were meant for every one. Fishing starts with one. So who's your one? Who's your one? Who's the one person that you want to have God move in them and do the work in them that God can only do? And what are the next steps you are going to do to be faithful in the part that you play in making disciples?